Okay, we better get started. We are in 1 John chapter 3, looking at verses 4 through 10. 1 John chapter 3, looking at verses 4 through 10. If you're using one of those blue church Bibles, you can turn to page 1022. 1022, that'll bring you to our text this morning. Titled this message, Irreconcilable Differences. Irreconcilable Differences. And it's going to be another two-parter. So I'll do part one this week, and I'll do part two in two weeks, because next week it'll be, like I said, a little different format for us. Get here early next week, by the way. Let's have a good time together. Let's really enjoy, not that we don't normally have a good time together, but on that particular day, try to get here a little bit earlier, okay? It'll be exciting. Irreconcilable differences. Where do you normally hear that term come up? Yeah, divorce, court, proceedings, irreconcilable differences. Irreconcilable, if you don't know, it it means not capable of being made to agree or coexist with something else. Okay? Can't coexist with something else. Two things that can't come together peacefully. Irreconcilable. And so often... This is like the general kind of category that divorces are, you know, why are you getting a divorce? We have irreconcilable differences. So here's one story about that. A woman stands in front of a judge seeking a divorce. But on that particular morning, the judge was in a very bad mood and he, he demanded to know the reason that this woman wanted to end her marriage. And of course, like many do, she said, I guess you can say, it's irreconcilable differences. The judge snaps back. Those are just buzzwords. People use that term when there are no grounds for a divorce. Now tell me one thing you don't like about your husband. The women are already laughing. I don't understand. Why are they laughing, babe? The woman, harsh. Oof. Men deserve it, I'm telling you. They deserve it. The woman pauses for a moment. Well, she says slowly, I don't much care for his girlfriend. <laughs> Married ladies, listen. If, if you came to me and you told me that your husband was committing adultery, what would you think if I said, what's the big deal? Can't you just go along with it? You know, live with it, just work it out, come to some agreement. You get them five days, nights a week, she gets them two. Would that kind of response make you angry? It should. Real angry. You know, the kind of rip my face off kind of angry. I mean, thinking that a wife could just go along with her her husband's affair and not be bothered by it is just as ridiculous as thinking that a Christian, a child of God, can be okay with sin in their lives. And just, you know, learn to live with it peacefully. Like adultery and marriage, habitual sin and the Christian cannot coexist. 
They cannot coexist. They cannot be at peace with each other. They are irreconcilable. This morning, we will look at that in some detail as we jump into this section of John's letter in chapter 3. We're looking at verses 4 through 10. I'm going to read, starting in chapter 2, verse 28, all the way down to chapter 3, verse 10, because I believe this is one kind of unit of Scripture here. It kind of all goes together, one thought that John is focusing on as he looks at righteousness and sin. So I'm just going to read it, but we're going to focus in on on verses 4 through 10. So follow along with me, beginning in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, that is Jesus Christ, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him, that is God. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This morning, if you're new with us, You can look inside of your bulletin on the left-hand side. There'll be an outline that you can use to follow along, let you know where we're going. There's this phrase in that outline. It kind of tells you, the audience, what we're doing, the church. We're going to consider, we will consider four reasons, just two this morning, but in totality it'll be four reasons after the next couple of weeks, why the children of God, Christians, cannot tolerate sin in their lives so that we, as Christians, will necessarily refuse to condone it or coexist with it. Those four reasons, or the reasons why, is because sin is rebellion against God. We'll look at that this morning. Two, Jesus was and is opposed to sin. Three, because of their personal relationship with Jesus. And four, because of who 
they are born of. Now, before we look at the first point, I want to remind you again, just for context, we've talked about this, that part of the reason behind John writing this letter was a threat, a threat that existed to the well-being of the church, to the believers. This threat, as we find out, was certain people who were initially part of the Christian community, but subsequently they had separated themselves from that Christian community, from the church, and they had separated themselves from the apostolic teaching. The apostolic teaching. We see that in chapter 2, verse 19. But they continued on and claimed to be Christian, to identify as Christian, to say that they knew Christ, to say that they knew God, to say that they had or possessed salvation. Salvation. All the while, they are teaching things that are opposed to true or genuine Christianity. Things that contradicted, again, the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. Remember who the apostles are. The apostles are the authorized and official representatives of Jesus Christ. Of Jesus Christ. And they were contradicting those teachings. It appears, as we talked about over the last month or so, that they mixed a worldly philosophy that we recognize to be early forms of Gnosticism. We've talked about that in previous weeks. They mixed that worldly false philosophy into Christianity and what they were left with with was a perverted and false form of Christianity that distorted the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, They got Jesus Christ wrong. They got salvation wrong. And they got sanctification wrong. And sanctification, I've mentioned this to you before, sanctification is that process by which God works in us, as we talked about this morning, to transform us into the people that He desires us to be, that He saved us to be. They get it all wrong, these false teachers, these Gnostics. So John here is laboring away in this letter to describe what true Christians believe. We call that doctrine, what they believe. And consequently, because of what they believe, how they live or behave morally, especially as true Christians. So that the true Christians reading this letter that fit the description, this is what you believe, this is how you live, fitting that description, they would be assured of their salvation. Okay, We're really Christians. We know we are because we believe the truth, and the truth is having an impact on our lives, and we are living differently, and all of these things tell us we are the real deal. Because remember, the Gnostics or these false teachers are coming to them and saying, no, 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 you're not the real deal, we're the real deal. So they needed assurance that following the apostles' teaching was the right way to go, was the right thing to do. And by contrast, by John laying out very clearly This is what you must believe as a Christian. This is how Christians behave. This is how Christians live. By contrast, that would help the church identify the false teachers because they would do the exact opposite. And by being able to identify the false teachers, they would know then these guys are not Christians. You know what they are? They're antichrist because that's how John defines them in chapter 2, verse 18. They're antichrist. They're not for Christ. 
They're not for Christianity. They are opposed to Jesus Christ. And they oppose Him by their teachings and their lifestyle. And therefore, there is no need for us to be deceived, as John warns in chapter 2, verse 26, and again in chapter 3, verse 7, or tempted to follow after or embrace these false teachers and their corrupted thinking and lifestyles. Now listen, it is generally believed that these false teachers held a view that in regard to Christianity, a person's behavior or morality was not important or less important than their supposed secret, esoteric, spiritual knowledge that they claimed to have, and we talked about that a few weeks ago, they claimed to have this secret knowledge and said this secret knowledge then was the key to salvation. That was the most important thing. How you lived your life was not of a great concern. Therefore, the false teachers were unconcerned with personal sin okay, or living righteously or obeying God's commands, they're not concerned. But what we see in the letter, this letter that Apostle John, the Apostle John wrote, is he's making it clear that if someone is really a Christian, if they really are a genuine, authentic, true follower of Jesus Christ, they will be concerned with these things. They will live differently, morally speaking, and they will progressively practice righteousness and that the perpetual practice of sin is totally irreconcilable and incompatible with the true Christian. With the true Christian. So, we spent the last couple of weeks looking at the practice of righteousness. The practice of righteousness, right? This week we'll look at sin. We'll look at sin, we'll look at the other side of that coin and why it cannot be, it cannot be tolerated by the true Christian. First, sin is rebellion against God. Sin is rebellion against God, beloved. Look back at the text with me. This is how John, John's going to, he's going to drive home his point here. He defines sin. He says, listen, Everyone, everyone who makes a practice of sinning, they also practice as a way of life, lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It is lawlessness. And again, as I said, one writer just stops here, one commentator stops here to point out the fact that it seems like here from this passage that the readers were being tempted, no, no doubt by these false teachers, to regard sin as a matter of indifference. That to fall into sin was no serious matter. You know, as long as you had this esoteric, secret, special knowledge that we have, your life and how you live your life and all that stuff, don't get all worried about that. When John stops and he says, listen to me, those who practice sin... Just, just in case you don't know, they practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. He wants to make it clear that sin is no small matter. It's not trivial. It's serious. Sin is lawlessness. So what does that mean? What does that mean? 
Well, one writer says this. The term lawlessness, lawlessness in the original language, it does not mean a state of being without law, just not having a law. But the assertion, rather, of the individual will, your will, my will, against and in defiance of the law of God. The refusal to live in accordance with the revealed standards of right and wrong. Did you get that? So let me help you a little bit. When you think about sin, beloved, when you think about sin being lawlessness, don't think anarchy. Anarchy. You know, when we, we see chaos break out in a city, right? We go, oh my goodness, it's just insanity and anarchy, which really means the absence of government or the disorder due to its absence. You know, when the police are gone, you know, we talk about that thin blue line, the police keep this thin blue line between order and disorder. When there is no police presence, then sometimes anarchy can break out because there's no law. Don't think of lawlessness like that. This is not anarchy. Think of it instead like this, insurrection. Insurrection. Do you know that word? It means a rebellion against the government or rulers of a country. An uprising. You get the difference? We're not talking about just the absence of law. We're talking about a rebellion against the law and the lawgiver. In this case, God. One writer just says, lawlessness is open rebellion and defiance toward God. Active rebellion against God's will. Okay? So according to the Apostle John, sin is, sin is more than just a violation of God's law or commands or, or as some people talk about sin, failing to hit the mark or the target. Because that, that is one definition, but it's not enough to truly define what sin is. It's, it's more than just missing the mark, beloved. It is really a position of opposition. Did you get that? Sin is a position of opposition, a willful attitude of rebellion against God's authority and rule over our lives. Maybe this picture will help you. You know, when I think of sin as just missing a mark, it doesn't strike me that bad. Okay, so here I am. I'm a... What's the person that shoots the bows and arrows? Thank you. I'm an archer. There's the target over there. Right next to Gloria, right there. Not you, you're not the target, but it's to the left of you. And I'm, I'm aiming at the target, and, and oops, I, I deviate from the target. I shoot to the right or to the left. Okay, sin, missing the mark. Sin is, sin is more than that, according to John. God becomes the target. And I don't miss Him. I aim at Him. Do you understand the difference? We're not talking about anarchy, lawlessness. We're not talking about just, oops, I missed the mark. See, that doesn't sound too bad. I sinned. Oops, I didn't. I'll try harder next time and I'll get it to the bullseye. This is different, beloved. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is rebellion against the lawgiver. Sin is insurrection. Sin is taking your arrows and firing them against God. 
Does that make you think a little bit differently about sin? It, it should. I, I hope it would. I think it's worth noting, too, that the great Antichrist, you know, we talk about him, this, this one who's going to stand in opposition against Jesus Christ and attempt to rebel against God during that period of time on earth in the future that we call the Great Tribulation. Do you know what he's called in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3? Do you know what, how they identify this Antichrist? They call him the man of lawlessness. The man of lawlessness. Lawlessness, rebellion against God, is what will characterize the satanic-empowered Antichrist. Okay? So how can it be then, how could it be, that lawlessness could characterize a Holy Spirit-indwelt and empowered Christian? How could it be? It can't. It cannot, and it won't. Not the true child of God, not the true Christian. It's impossible. You know, I was reading this one particular pastor. He was working through this passage, and then he, he shared this personal story. And unfortunately, this story is all too familiar in people's minds, and other people think this way. So I'm just going to share this story with you and talk a little bit about it. He was he said that he was just riding along with a, a particular man, a professor, actually, in theology in a seminary. Okay, so this is not a, just a normal Joe. This is a guy who teaches about God and Christianity. He's riding along with them. They pass a very large liquor store. And he just mentions, he sees that it's kind of an unusual liquor store because it's huge, it's big, and it's solid glass, and there's lights, and you can see the liquor store. It's like, you know saying, come in and purchase, and so on and so forth. A little startling. So the man says to this theology professor, he says, boy, that's a strange kind of a liquor store. And the man replied, yeah, they're all over the city here, the uh, theology of the professor in theology. They're all over the city. In fact, they're owned by a guy in our Sunday school class. And the man responds, really? Somebody in your Sunday school class? Yeah, yeah, that's true. And you know, that's not the worst of it. He's not faithful to his wife. And then he goes on, you know, to talk more about that. And, and then it says he made the most amazing statement that he couldn't forget. He says, you know, it's really hard to believe how a Christian can act like that. And so the man responds back and says, well, did it ever occur to you that he might not be a Christian? And the professor of theology Instead of saying, yeah, maybe that's the case, instead of saying that, he says, oh, no, no, I remember the day that he prayed the prayer. You know, so listen to me. This is, this is the thinking in modern-day evangelicalism in a lot of churches, sadly. That at some point in your life, you can come forward in an altar call, you can raise your hand, you can say, yes, I believe in Jesus. And then it can have absolutely no impact on your life. You can continue to live a life of sin. You can continue to disobey the Lord. But don't you worry about your Christianity. You prayed the prayer. You're good to go. You're guaranteed into heaven. Beloved, that's not scriptural. That's not biblical. That's not true. The Christian, something happens to the Christian. 
You got that person that comes up, they pray the prayer, they walk the aisle, they say yes to Jesus. If they really said yes to Jesus, they are born again right there on the spot. God's Spirit enters into them and begins to change them, transform them. Will it take time? You bet it'll take time. But change starts to happen. And they will not be the same person that they were year after year after year. Or even worse, going back the other direction. The Bible makes no kind of statements about that. It says the exact opposite over and over again. And yet, the church struggling with all these people who come into the church, who say, I'm a Christian, and live like the devil, what do they do with that? Well, he says he's a Christian, so he's a Christian. No! And that's the most unloving thing you could do to someone. Let them continue in their deception. Let them continue to think that they're saved when they're lost. And when they die, they'll find out the truth. So John's way more loving. It's way more loving to confront people and say, listen, evaluate yourself. You don't see this stuff in your life? You don't see a change? I don't care what you did when you were six years old then. I don't care that you walked the aisle. I don't care it was very emotional. I don't care that you cried. You know, it's not that I don't care. You understand? But that doesn't make you saved. Only if you are sincere and God acts and saves you. And you will know that by the fact that your life will be changed. Can you know that you are truly saved? So people always talk about, you know, hey, how do you know you're saved? I know I'm saved because of what happened 20 years ago. I would much rather a person say, I know I'm saved because I am not the person I once was. Oh, I'm not the person I'm going to be. Oh, God's still at work. I'm under construction, baby. But I am not the person. If you would have known me five years ago, you'd know. You wouldn't even have to ask the question. You'd know something radically happened in my life. And the only explanation is, God entered in and saved my soul. See? Since sin is lawlessness, beloved, everyone practicing sin, meaning, an, meaning this, an unbroken and continual lifestyle marked by sin. An unbroken and continual lifestyle marked by sin are then continually living in rebellion to God. That's, that's what John is saying. Listen, it, those who practice lawlessness, those who make it a way of life, they are living in open rebellion and defiance to God on an ongoing basis. By the way, I just throw this in. Unbelief in Jesus Christ, unwilling to come to Jesus Christ, unwilling to accept Him on His terms, unwilling to surrender to Him, is ongoing sin. Okay? So I, you know, we could think of our neighbor who... You know, because I'm afraid that people hear this and they think, oh, habitual sin. That's like someone who goes out and robs and steals and all that. No. No, it could just be the fact that they might, you might have nice neighbors, but they live in continual unbelief, which is rebellion against God. They won't bow before Jesus Christ. So even in that sense, they live and they practice lawlessness, insurrection against God. But here's the thing. If sin is lawlessness, and it is, if sin is... Rebellion, and then the practice of sin is the practice of lawlessness, the ongoing act of rebellion. How can a Christian, that's what John is saying, listen, how can a Christian, a child of God, you know the one who claims to love God, have a relationship with God, the one who says they're born of God, 
How can that Christian at the same time then continue uninterrupted in rebellion against God? They can't. They can't, beloved. You know, Jesus was talking about trees that bear good fruit and bad fruit, and good tree will bear good fruit, bad tree will bear bad fruit. He says in Matthew, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone, but he who does the will of my Father will enter. Many on that day will say, didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many wonderful works in your name? And Jesus says, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. I never had a relationship with you. That's evident by the fact that you never broke with your rebellion. You never broke. You may have done religious things, but they're all external. You never broke with your rebellion. I never knew you. Depart from me. One writer says this, When God transforms a soul, defiance is replaced by compliance. Rebellion is replaced by submission. And lawlessness is replaced by obedience. Beloved, do Christians still sin? We know that. John says that, right? He says that earlier in the chapter. He's not pretending to portray the super-Christian as if that's a reality in this life, that there could be people who actually completely and forever break with sin. Yeah, Christians still sin. And is it rebellion? Yes. Every time they do it. But unlike believers, unlike, I'm sorry, unbelievers, unlike unbelievers, Christians have a new nature They have a new nature provided for them by God. And that is proven, hear me, that is proven by the fact that when they sin, when they rebel, you know what? They're grieved over it. Now listen, they're not just grieved over it because of the consequences of sin. See, the world might be grieved over their sin because they end up in jail or maybe not that bad, but bad relationships, you know, they do something wrong, they drink and they get into an accident and they're sorry that they did this thing, but they're sorry because of the consequences of sin in their life, that they got popped or they had to pay a price for their sin. I'm not talking about that kind of grieving. It's something different. It's actually grief over the rebellion you just practiced against your God. See, the the Christian has grief, and because of that grief over their rebellion and sin, they ultimately, beloved, confess their sin. Remember we talked about that many weeks ago. Confess means to admit their sin. They openly admit it, and they agree with God about it. That it's a violation, that it's rebellion, that it's wrong, that it's evil, that it's wicked, that it's disgusting. They have a change in their minds and in their heart about how they view sin in their lives. In their lives. They see it for what it really is. Filthy. Ugly. And, no, and to have no part in the Christian's life. 
So they confess, they repent, they turn from their rebellion, they turn back to the God who they love and have a desire to serve and obey because that desire and love, guess what, beloved? That desire and love has been put in them by God. Isn't that cool? You think you came up that way on your own? You just one day you decided I'm going to desire and love God? You didn't. He put it in your heart. He put it in your heart when you were reborn, when you were born again, when God's Spirit entered in, when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. So, you cannot make it any longer a practice of sin and refuse to repent. You know why? Because it will rip you up inside. How many of you know what I'm talking about right now? It will rip you up inside and rebellion against God then becomes irreconcilable with your new nature. You can't be at peace with it. You can't be okay with it. Of course, our obedience as a Christian will be imperfect for sure. No one's saying that. John's not saying that. He's not saying you're going to have perfect obedience. It'll be imperfect. But certainly, beloved, it won't be absent. It's not going to be absent. And it will be incrementally increasing. You know what incrementally is? I use it a lot. Just little by little, persistently, consistently, just little bits increasing and more observable as you grow and mature in the Lord. You'll see it, and you'll see it more. Maybe it's faint in the beginning, but you'll begin to see it, beloved. That's why discipleship and all these things are so important. That's why dinner for six and all those things, because part of the problem is churches don't disciple one another anymore, so they are stifled in their growth. So they don't see it. And as a result, they question their salvation. They don't know. So we are to make disciples, training them, teaching them all that Christ taught the disciples, taught the apostles, and they'll grow by that as we enter into relationship with one another, helping one another, encouraging one another, instructing one another, exhorting, rebuking one another, as we put off sin and put on righteousness, and we see God at work in and through us as He transforms us, changes us. I have to move on. John gives us another reason why Christians cannot tolerate sin in their lives and therefore will not allow sin to continue without interruption. They won't, beloved. They won't allow sin to continue without interruption, without fighting against it, without confession and repentance. Listen, if you're a Christian and you don't fight against sin, something's wrong. If you've laid down, raised up the white flag, say, come on in, baby. Make yourself at home. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. The Christian fights. They don't always do it well. Sometimes they get overwhelmed. But they come back at it again and they fight. This is why Christians long for Christ to return. This is why I said last week, when I see Him, I'll be like Him. Lord, glory in heaven. My fight with sin will be over because it's a battle, beloved. It's a battle. Anyway, John gives another reason here. Jesus was and is opposed to sin. That's number two. Jesus was and is opposed to sin. Look back at your, your Bible with me. 1 John 3, 5. And uh, we'll also look at 1 John 3, 8 in a second here. 1 John 3, 5. 
Then John says, you know, you know that he, that is Jesus, appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And then again in 1 John 3, just let your eyes drift down, whoever makes a practice of sinning, he's of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared, the reason he came, was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, one thing is immediately apparent from these passages, okay? You don't have to be a Bible scholar or go to seminary to figure this out. It's right there. Jesus is not okay with sin. Do you see that? Just reading the text, you know right away, Jesus is not cool with sin. He's not all right with it. He's opposed to it. He is flat out opposed He obviously does not think that sin is insignificant or no big deal, nor is he willing to tolerate it or just go along with it. You know, in fact, his mission or purpose in coming to earth, as John indicates here, hear me, because people get this all messed up too, his mission or purpose in coming to earth was not to to simply show us a kinder way to live. Beloved, So, John says, you know that he appeared to show us a kinder way to live. You're not, I'm sorry, that's nowhere, it's not here, you're not going to find in the Bible that that was the main reason Jesus came, so we would figure out how to be nice to each other. Seriously? I mean, we should be nice to each other. By the way, the other reason he came was not just to provide a way for people to escape hell. Okay, because that's what some people think. He just came to buy me a ticket out of hell. No, that's not what it says. Rather, this is what it says. Jesus appeared to do what, beloved? Take away sins. Destroy the works of the devil. John is bringing up what Jesus' mission was regarding sin. Him bringing this up was to show that a person claiming to be a Christian but continuing to make a practice of sin makes no sense. Because their actions contradict the very reason for which Jesus Christ came. You see that? It's a contradiction. It doesn't make sense. It's illogical. Unless, of course, we are to believe that Jesus' goal in coming to earth and dying on the cross was only to take away the guilt and punishment of our sins, but leave behind the actual acts of sin to go on unabated in his people, meaning still as forceful and as intense as they were before, so that they would continue to practice sin and be at peace with their sin in this life, but they would ultimately be saved from the punishment of sin and rebellion in the life to come. Is that what we believe? Think about that with me for a moment, because that is how some people live who identify as Christians. They live as, what I, as if what I just said was true. That Jesus really, he didn't do anything to deal with my sin now. He just dealt with it in the future when I, so that I don't have to pay the penalty for it. So I can get it into heaven and get out of hell. So he left me in my mess. He left me in my mess when he died on the cross. He didn't do anything to break the power of sin in my life now. That's how they live. Is that true, beloved? Does that even sound like it comes from the Bible? It does not. It does not. It is not true. How about this passage? 
here, just a few in Titus 2.14. Talking about Jesus Christ, Paul writes, who gave Himself for us to redeem us. You know what redeem there means? It means to release someone who is held captive. Sinners are held captive until Jesus Christ redeems them and sets them free to redeem us from all, what? Lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. You think He's talking about somewhere in the future in heaven? He's talking about right now. To redeem us now from lawlessness. Certainly it includes heaven. He's talking about now too. To redeem us and to purify for Himself a people who are zealous for good works. Excited, active, going after it. How about 1 Peter 2.24? You know this passage probably. He Himself, who's that? Jesus bore, took our sins in His body, the Christian on the tree. Why? Why did you do it, Jesus? That we might die to sin. No longer live in sin. And live to what? Righteousness, beloved. When? In the future? Now. Now. Alright, back to 1 John. 1 John 3.8 says, chapter 3, verse 8, John says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. We'll look more at that next week. But in context, I just want you to understand what's going on. Then he says, listen, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Again, according to the Apostle John, Jesus, the Son of God, appeared, came to earth to destroy the works of the devil. What works is he talking about? Like his freeway project or something like that? No. The context of this passage is the practice of sin. So the works of the devil here certainly would include all that the devil has done to help lead people into sin and rebellion against God. Beloved, if you don't know this, I'm sure you do, but if you don't, Satan, the devil, opposes God, okay? And his goal and his desire is for the world of humanity, men and women, boys and girls, to oppose God as well. That's his task. To live in rebellion against their Creator. He's doing a great job of it. But Jesus, the Son of God, He overcame the evil one. He overcame the evil one. He destroyed the works of the devil. Well, in what sense can we say that Jesus destroyed the works of the devil? Well, the original word, therefore, destroyed, in the original language, it does not mean annihilate. It does not mean annihilate, but rather it means to give release, to break, okay, to break, or to render powerless or inoperative, so it doesn't function like it used to. So through Jesus' death and resurrection, He destroyed, rendered powerless, the works of of the devil, if you will, by breaking the chains that make human beings slaves of sin. That's what Romans 6 is all about. Check it out in your time. Read Romans 6. Jesus broke Satan's back. He broke the chains that bound 
us. Although Satan remains active for the time being, he has already been defeated and he awaits his final doom. He is on death row. He is a condemned creation. And those and only those who are in Christ Jesus, who have a personal abiding relationship with Him, Jesus Christ, can and do experience victory and freedom from the enslavement of sin because Jesus Christ has destroyed the works of the devil. They are no longer slaves of sin, beloved. Did you know that? You need to know that. You need to know that and hear that and repeat it back to yourself. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you are no longer a slave of sin, but you are now a slave of righteousness. Righteousness, according to God's Word. You think I'm making that up? I better not be. Romans 6, Romans 6, verse 17, it'll pop up here. But thanks be to God, Paul says, that though you were once, speaking to Christians, though you were once, at one time you were slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed, and have, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. One commentator says, Christians are not to give in to sin because they are dead to sin and no longer slaves of it. It is totally then contrary to God's plan for slaves of righteousness to become enslaved again to sin. One writer adds this, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, that He might destroy the works of the devil in your life and in mine, here and now, so that anyone who goes on practicing sin has not had the works of the devil destroyed in his life and therefore is not a Christian, whatever they might claim. That's the most loving thing I could say to a group of people. Because that's the truth. And the truth will set you free. If you believe it. Finally, note this. John reminds his readers in verse 5. He just makes this note. That Jesus, the one who appeared in the past to take away sins and destroy the works of the devil, he is the one in whom there is no sin. There is no sin. He uses a present tense word there which just means right now. At the time of that letter and continuing forth, there is no sin in Jesus Christ. On earth, He was without sin. And He remains and continues to be the sinless one. Yeah, we know that, Jeremy. We know that. We've heard that a thousand times. Jesus is the sinless one. Okay, so why does John bring it up again? Well, Jesus' total lack of sin, His complete and ongoing purity, helps to just emphasize the point, drive it home, that Jesus is absolutely opposed to sin. He's absolutely opposed to sin. There's no sin in Him. There never has been. There still isn't. His very mission was come to take away sin, destroy the works of the devil. He can't tolerate it. What He did and who He is prove that to be the case. He is flat out opposed to sin. Jesus. 
Now, I want you to think about this. You know this passage in Galatians 2.20 where Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Just ponder that a little bit. Ponder that a little bit. So as we look at this, you start to realize then that it becomes outrageous and illogical to think that a Christian, a Christian beloved, one who is a follower or disciple of Jesus Christ, would be okay then with continuing in sin, unrepentant and unchanged in their rebellion towards God, when Jesus Christ, the one who is and remains sinless, came to earth with the purpose and intent of taking away sin and destroying the works of the devil. If Jesus is so clearly opposed to sin, and he is, wouldn't his followers be as well? Wouldn't they be? Since Jesus came and broke the power of sin for all those who truly have a relationship with him, would it then seem strange to you at all for someone to say they have a relationship with Jesus and yet continue in their sin in an unbroken and habitual pattern? Would that seem strange? It seems strange to me. It should. It should because sin and the Christian, they are irreconcilable. They're irreconcilable. I wouldn't expect a married woman to accept her husband's girlfriend. Likewise, I don't expect a Christian to be okay with sin. They're irreconcilable. And neither does God. So there's a couple of, real quickly, and then we'll close up here. Listen, there's a couple of responses that can be made here. Probably more than I'm suggesting, but here's a Christian's response to this type of message because the level of biblical knowledge and understanding in many Christians' lives is, is small. It's small, unfortunately, only because I don't think they've been exposed to the Bible. I don't know what else to, how to say it. We give a big portion of our time here every Sunday to the Word of God because we believe that it is the Word of God that transforms us, that changes us. We hear it, we believe it because the Spirit empowers us to, and then He gives us the ability to apply its truths to our lives. So we, we preach, we just keep pouring this thing out because it's what has changed me, and it, has, it is what changes people. I've seen it change people. As they hear it, they understand it, and they begin to apply it and believe it. So a Christian's response to this type of message, wow, sin is a rebellion against God is like me pulling back my arrow and firing at him. I, I don't want to do that. I love God. And I love God because he first loved me. How could I shoot arrows at him? You see? That's the Christian's response. Christian begins to understand how awful sin is. It's lawlessness. It's rebellion. It's an insurrection. And their response, energized by the Spirit of God that lives inside of them, causes them to say, i got to stop. i got to stop. And then they find the strength to stop through the truths of the Gospel and the power of the Spirit that lives within them. They realize and believe, I'm no longer a slave to sin. 
I don't have to say yes to this anymore. God has set me free. Jesus has destroyed the works of the devil, broken the chains that once bound me to this awful life. I'm free. And as they begin to believe that and have faith in the Son of God, as Paul says, who dwells in me, who gave himself for me, their life begins to change. That's the Christian's response. They'll evaluate their life. They'll take the appropriate action against sin. Not just once, beloved. Not just for the next week. But they'll start to do it as a way of life. And by the way, as they live their life, this is what I've found. This is true in my own life. What I didn't think was sin before or I didn't have a problem with, as I grow and mature in the Lord, oh my goodness, oh wow, that's another problem. Thank you, Lord, for pointing that out. But now I want to eradicate it. So as they progress, as they grow, things will become more evident to them as they continue to walk in the light. Remember we talked about it? The light exposes their darkness. And as they see it, they want to get out of it because they love the Lord. Why? Because God loved them and placed love for Him inside of them. Wow, God. They don't blow it off, beloved. That's the Christian's response. They don't blow it off. They don't say, I'm good, I'm good, walk out of here. I don't need that. That was a waste of 50 minutes. The Christian doesn't respond like that. The Christian by name only, by that I mean the one who says, I'm a Christian, but they aren't. The knockoff, they won't give this message a second thought. They won't give it a second thought. They won't let it change them. They won't meditate on it. They won't think about sin. They won't think about eradicating sin in their lives. They won't think about Jesus' purpose to remove sins, to take them away, to destroy the works of the devil. They'll just go on doing what they've always done, practicing sin, living in rebellion, being cool with all that. So if that's you, you're not a Christian. That's what John's saying. And I would trust and pray and hope that you would wake up. That God would break through all that nonsense, tear down that stupid wall you have, and break through your self-deception, and rescue you before it's too late. Let's pray. Father, help us As your people, help us, Father. Help us to see sin the way you see it. The world glamorizes it. They glamorize it. And we may have even had people in our lives that made it look like this is the thing you do. We've got to deal with all that mess, all of our upcomings and all that stuff in the world around us and our own sinfulness. But Father, help us to see it for what it really is. It's lawlessness. It's insurrection. It's rebellion against you. Father, we we can no longer be okay with that because you have transformed us. You You have indwelt us with your Spirit so that we call you Father, Abba, Father. You have given us a love for you that will not just stand there and hide in a corner while we continue rebel against you. No longer can we do that. Father, may we repent. May we break free. May we realize the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we believe. That's key, that we believe 
that Jesus came to take away sin, to break the back of the devil, to rip apart the chains that once enslaved us. Oh, Father, by faith, may we believe that and act accordingly. Father, for those that are here who maybe this is just another message, but they're really not Christians, I pray, Father, I plead that this would penetrate they would stop lying to each to us and to themselves. Because the truth the truth regardless of what they say. And if they live continually in rebellion against you, according to John, there's no way that they're of you, God. They are of the devil. So Father, help them come to grips with the consequences of what that means. And Father, may they... Repent now. Repent of the rebellion. Turn from it and turn to you because if they do that, they will find grace and mercy and arms wide open that accept them because of Jesus Christ and what He did for them on the cross. Father, have Your way with us. Have Your way with us. And those of us who are Christians and maybe, you know, we sin, we know we do. Father, I, I pray, I trust that we wouldn't be blown away by this kind of message and, and start to doubt everything about our lives, but just recognize, yeah, we still wrestle with sin. But for the Christian, it is a wrestling match. At least it should be. And Father, may we find strength in the Spirit that You gave us and in the truths of Jesus Christ and what He accomplished on our behalf. May we find strength in those things to take up the battle daily, hourly, minute by minute, to remove and purge sin and rebellion and wickedness from our life. Ultimately, Lord, we know if we do that, it's for our good. But better than that, it's for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.